0: Let me re- invite you to remain standing out a celebration for our risen king and his gospel, and turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1 is where we will be in our sermon study this morning. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 18. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we invite you to grab one of the ones that should be in a chair in front of you and turn to page 1028. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that a true gospel sermon is a sermon that declares you to look unto Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us here at Redeemer in recent weeks and months, you know since the beginning of December we've been walking through the gospel of Luke. And every week we've been able to stop and stare at the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His splendor and majesty. And we want to do uh, the exact same thing this morning just from the end of God's Word in Revelation chapter 1. So it is a brief text, yet a glorious text that we want to give our attention and affection to this morning. So let me just read verses 17 and 18 of Revelation 1, then I want to pray once again briefly for our study and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks unto us his perfect and powerful word. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. At Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together once again. Father, we come to you now asking that you would send your spirit among us that we might indeed lift up our eyes unto Jesus Christ, he who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So give us eyes of faith, a heart of repentance, that we might follow him wholly this morning. Help us to hear with gladness, with eagerness, that we might know who he is and what he has done for us. Help me to preach as I ought, boldly and clearly as a dying man unto dying people, and help us to listen as though eternity hangs in the balance, for we know it indeed does this morning. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was 13 years old when I attempted to climb my first mountain. It was a mountain called Horn Peak in southern Colorado. And the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, it's a mountain that I'm told is about 13,400 feet high in the air. And I made it 13,000 feet up and stopped at what's known as a shorter peak before the summit, known as a Little Horn. And I remember stopping there because I was completely overwhelmed with the experience of having climbed all the way up this mountain. I even remember it like it was yesterday, this bright A sunny day in July, as you looked out from Little Horn, you could see Colorado and all its creational beauty spread out before you, which was for me as a young 13-year-old quite a heart-stopping sight, but was even more heart-stopping, and why we had stopped right there was, I looked down and realized how far it was down, and discovered then as a newly minted teenager that I was not very good friends with heights, and so I told my dad that we couldn't go up any further. And this morning what we come to in the book of Revelation is another heart-stopping experience as the Apostle John is summoned to heaven's throne room. But of course, he didn't scale an earthly summit. The Spirit called him right up to where the presence of our King of Kings is. And what he saw causes him to fall down as though he was dead. And so I pray this morning as we look at this wonderful text together that God may open up our eyes afresh to the beauty and the glory of our risen King from our text together. But before we get into the specific text, I do think it's wise to say something about the book of Revelation as a whole. It's a book, isn't it, that has confused and confounded many Christians throughout the centuries. John Calvin himself wrote a commentary on almost every book of the Bible, but he didn't write one on Revelation because he said, I haven't understood it yet. And maybe you feel something of that confusion when you come to the back of your Bible and you come to this apocalyptic book that seems to be so full of bizarre images you just can't make out what its point is for you. So let's remember the simple setting of this book. You have the Apostle John who is summoned up on a Sunday in the Spirit unto heaven and he receives these revelations and they're great visions of an apocalyptic nature The images are often bizarre, they're often striking, and even wild at certain points. And what tends to cause Christians to go wrong, in my estimation on this book, is that they think of Revelation as something like a puzzle book. If you just get the pieces exactly right, then you're going to be able to see what the picture is and understand it. But the puzzle is so complicated, you almost lose hope that you're ever going to get the full picture sorted out together, when in reality, the book of Revelation is just a picture book. With these images, although they are symbolic and striking, God is communicating unto us a very simple truth. Jesus has won. And He will usher in that final victory at the last day. And so it's written to Christians in the first century undergoing great persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. And if you wanted to write this down, a simple summary of the book of Revelation as a whole is that it encourages persecuted Christians to persevere because Jesus will win. That is the whole point of this book. So if you find yourself ever in seasons of suffering, maybe a season of sorrow, grief, anguish, or affliction, Revelation is uniquely a book for you because what it wants you to do is fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ and so find power and sustenance in your pilgrimage journey towards Heaven looking to Him always that you might indeed reach the end. And that's exactly what we get to look at this morning right from the outset of Revelation chapter 1 as John gets this striking and stunning vision of none other than Jesus Christ. And the simple point we're wanting to see from our two verses this morning is the great truth that Jesus rules over death. That he has risen from the grave and thus he rules over death. So kids, I want you to look at me for a second and think about your life in 110 years. In all likelihood, if Jesus does not come back, we all in this room will have died by that time. And I want you to know why you don't have to be scared of death. And even some of you I know are in here this morning and have recently lost loved ones. I want you to know the confidence that we have when we die in the Lord Jesus Christ and what awaits us for all eternity. And so I just want to walk through our our verses under a couple simple headings, the first of which is who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. So look again at verse 17 as our text begins. John says, when I saw him. I want you to pause right there because we need to ask the necessary question of, well, who did John just see? So if you scan your eyes back up the text to verse 10, you'll see I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, John says. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So he hears this stunning, loud voice, and then skip down to verse 12. He turns to see the voice. So I want us, as we just work quickly now, somewhat briefly, through verses 12 through 16, to see a couple vital truths about who Jesus is, according to this vision that the Apostle John received on that Sunday so long ago. The first truth of which is Jesus is present with his people. Notice how verse 12 continues. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. If you look down to verse 20 of the text, we find out that these seven lampstands represent seven churches in Asia Minor. And it's the great and glorious truth that Christ has indeed risen. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he is no less present among his people that he indeed is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. Jesus is present with his people. You also see, secondly, that Jesus fulfills prophecy because it says that he is present among his people like a son of man. Some of the most well-known prophecies in all the Old Testament and Jewish culture came from the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 10 talk specifically about these prophecies of one to come who is going to be the son of man. And Jesus' favorite title when describing Himself in the Gospels used over 70 different times is that He is the Son of Man. That all of God's prophecies and promises have indeed reached their fulfillment in this King, Jesus Christ. He's with us. He fulfills prophecy. He's also the final high priest, the great high priest. Look at how the text continues in verse 13. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So from the book of Exodus, this is garments of the high priest, uh, reminding us that Jesus is our great final high priest who's offered the full and complete sacrifice for the sins of God's people, spilling his blood once and for all, cleansing them of their unrighteousness for anyone who would trust in him. So he's with us, he fulfills prophecy, he is the final high priest. And notice next that he is also infinitely old. Look at verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now kids, when you think of someone that has snow white hair, you tend to think of someone who is younger or older. You think of someone who is older, right? Right? And even in Daniel's prophecies of the Son of Man, he also links in these prophecies and words about the ancient of days, him who had no beginning. And one of the ways that Daniel sees the ancient of days depicted before him in his vision is that he has hair white as snow and wool. So what we find here is the truth of Christianity that separates itself from all other religions that we confess that Jesus Christ is God, a very God from eternity past. He is the eternal Son of God, infinitely old in his age. And I want you to see next that he's also the righteous judge. Cause look at what we're told about his eyes in verse 14. We're told his eyes are like flames of, of fire. His very depiction is used later on in Revelation, chapter 19, verse 12, talking about his righteous judgment. His righteous judgment. So some of you maybe have seen movies from, you know, the 40s, 50s or 60s. I'm remembering movies that are largely related to World War Two and prisoners of war are trying to escape their prison, and they eventually get outside the prison walls, but they haven't got yet outside of the, the prison gates or the prison fences, and so you see that the alarm has gone out. Prisoners have been let loose, and then the spotlight is circling the prison yard, you know, looking for these prisoners that have gotten out, and inevitably these men or women that are trying to escape, they're dodging and trying to hide from the spotlight lest they get caught. And what I want you to know from these Eyes of flaming fire, that's true of our Lord Jesus Christ, as no one can hide from His judgment. He is the one throughout Revelation that has the power and authority not only to defeat His rivals, but punish them forever unto eternal torment. He is the righteous judge. You also want to see in verse 15, He's infinitely holy. You see what John notices about His feet? They were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Uh, This image of refined bronze communicates his purity without error. It's perfect, there's no blemish, there's no spot, there's no wrinkle, but it also communicates his power that has no equal, because in the ancient world, bronze was a symbol of strength. His very feet are unalterably strong, so holy is our king of kings. And just two more. Notice next that his voice has all authority. You see, his voice is said to be like the roar of many waters. And then leading into verse 16, in his hand he holds seven stars, and from his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Throughout Revelation, you see this king wielding his authority through the power of his word. Word that has the authority to welcome people in to His family of salvation. Word that has the authority to judge people once and for all for having opposed and denied Him in their life. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to this King. And He ordinarily wields it with His Word of power. And then finally notice that He's also infinitely glorious. The end of verse 16 tells us His face was like the sun shining in full strength. I don't know if you've ever tried it before, students, but you've walked outside on a sunny day and you just stared into the sun. I'm sure when you did it, you realized you can't do it for very long. So blinding is the strength of the sun. And this is what John is trying to communicate to us in these pictures of the glory of our Lord. So blinding and resplendent is his majesty that you just can't look into it very long before, as John's getting ready to do, you fall down on your face in fear. So this is the one that John sees. King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior, our risen Messiah. He who is with his people, He who fulfills prophecy is the final high priest. He who is infinitely old, the righteous judge, infinitely holy. His voice has all authority and He's infinitely glorious. If you were to describe Jesus Christ to a friend or co-worker this week, how would you do it? What images, words, would you use to describe Jesus Christ? Maybe you're in here this morning and you... You don't trust in Jesus and you think Jesus was indeed a real person, but he was little more than a good teacher or uh, an astonishing prophet who preached with power. I want you to know that this is what we believe about our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things are true about him, that this is no mere man. This is the God-man who came to save sinners like you and me. He's indescribable and indestructible in his beauty and glory. And that's what John sees. If you've read C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe before, you may recall this fascinating conversation that the little Pevensey kids have with the talking beavers about the Lion King Aslan. Uh, Mrs. Beaver and Mr. Beaver are talking about this great king who, who rules over Narnia. And then Susan, I'm sorry, actually Lucy asks them, well, is, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver says sternly, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know that he's the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. He's the king, I tell you. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver, of course, says, no, he's not safe. Why would you think he is safe? He is good. He is good. And then Mrs. Beaver says, well, my dearie, when you meet him, make no mistake, you will be nervous. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, I would be shocked. John doesn't stand before this son of man with knocking knees, does he? He falls down in fear of his life. Do you see how verse 17 continues? When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. It was as though if you happened to be a fly on the wall in heaven, John has just dropped dead in your vision at just the sight and the words of this king. But he's blinding in his majesty, but also boundless in his mercy. Because do you see what Jesus does to John? He reaches out with his right hand. And he says, fear not. I am the first and the last. First and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 8, you'll see who also claimed to be the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. You notice verse 8? There we find in the Father's voice... The claim, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then here comes the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And it's here that we come to on this Easter morning, to that truth that does singularly distinguish us from all other systems of belief. Uh, We don't confess mere belief that Jesus existed and he died. We, We do say that, don't we? But we also say that he is God, of very God, the first and the last. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is who John sees. And so matchless is he in his mercy and compassion and kindness, he reaches down and says, have no fear, because I am the first and the last. So this is who Jesus is. And I want us to see next what Jesus did. Because we find two simple truths about our Lord Jesus' work. As the verse continues, uh, we first see that he is the living one. That he died, he says. I'm the living one, I died. We celebrate, of course, today his resurrection, which, of course, causes us to remember that he, in fact, died in our place. And to speak of death in this way is to speak of death historically. He just simply says, I died. He was dead for a time. But parents, I want you to know that it's even more important to speak to your kids doctrinally about his death. Why did he die? Well, this text, of course, doesn't give us that answer. But kids, you might even ask your parents later on this this day at lunch or in your Easter dinner, well, why is it that Jesus died? And let us remember as family members, covenant members of God, this is the most important question that we can answer to anyone who asks it. More important than my little kids, there are six of them at home, Uh, Knowing that 5 plus 7 equals 12, that Austin is the state capital of Texas, that Villanova and Michigan play in the NCAA championship game tomorrow, or in our world of soccer, Zlatan Ibrahimovic has signed for the LA Galaxy. More important for them to know is what? Why Jesus died. And you can write it down. The simplest five-word answer we find in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15.3. Jesus died for our sins. So you might be in here this morning and you've not yet come to Christ in faith. I want you to meditate on those five words. Jesus died for our sin. The greatest five words that you could ever hear. Because the Bible tells us that you've been born into sin, that from birth you have rebelled against God and deserve nothing but His wrath and punishment forever. That there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor to earn His welcome into His eternal home. And so what did He do? He sent this King, Jesus Christ, to be born as a servant, to take the form of an obedient Son and die on the cross in your place, so that by turning from your sin and trusting in Him alone, you might know that indeed He is the One who can save you from your sin. So have you come to Him In faith today, this king who died in your place. He was dead for a time, but notice now he's alive for all time. As the text continues, he says, And behold, I am alive forevermore. He's perfect in his obedience. He's blameless in his righteousness. So when he dies on the cross, what he spills is spotless, stainless blood that can indeed atone for your sin. But also, therefore, he goes into the grave, and guess what? Death has no claim on him. Sin has no wages he can't pay. Satan has no case to make against this Lord. And so it's the Father's Amen on that Lord's Day so long ago when He burst forth from the tomb. The Father's Amen and acceptance of His Son's work. The Father's declaration that finally, after so many years and centuries, He's beginning to make all things new. And even Jesus Christ has said in the book of Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, to be the firstborn of the dead. He is the first one who has risen from the grave unto everlasting life. So anyone who is united to Him by faith, guess what? You too will be raised from the grave unto everlasting life. Now don't miss that you are more certain, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you can be more certain that Christ will open the grave and lead you into eternal glory when He returns than you can be certain that you will wake from your bed tomorrow morning. So powerful is what he did. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. But I also want you to see thirdly and finally what he has. You see how the text ends? He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Usually on Friday evenings at our home, we have something we call a family fun Friday, which is little more than movie and pizza night. At the stone home and they're all young six from age seven and a half and down so we've become something of connoisseurs of the classic disney animated catalog you know normally watching one of those each week and just this week uh, the movie of choice was rescuers down under i don't know if you've ever seen that movie before if you haven't it just tells the story of a young boy named cody who's found this great glorious golden eagle And Cody's basically kidnapped by a poacher who wants to know the location of the eagle's nest. And so Cody's thrown into his kind of sinister lair, into a prison cell of sorts, and he befriends all of these cute little animals. And of course, they hatch up a plan to try to escape from their cell, but they need something to get out, don't they? They need the keys. And here comes Jesus saying, I have the keys The death in Hades. It's not just saying, because it's saying this, that he has the ability and access to open the grave. You know what he's saying even further? I own it. It's not just that he rose from the dead and so rules over death. He says, now I own it. And let us know how much of a comfort this must have been to the early Christians in the first centuries that would have first heard this good news. Facing martyrdom for their faith in Jesus Christ. Facing persecution and suffering for their trust in Him. And here comes a vision of the Lord saying, don't worry. That grave will not be your home. I will open that grave and you will come be with me forever. Also know that it is a terrifying revelation to those who are apart from Jesus Christ. Because when He returns, He's going to come back and He's going to take that key and He's going to open all of the graves. And for those of you that trust in Jesus Christ, it is a, most comforting and welcoming opening for you rise to eternal blessedness. But if you remain apart from Christ, is an opening unto punishment forever and torment in the presence of God's wrath. Why would you not come to this risen Savior in His mercy and kindness that you might hear, as it were, that key rattling into the lock at the last day, knowing that you go to your everlasting home of eternal joy and gladness. He's risen, from the, he's risen from the grave. And so he rules over death. What reason have we to fear in this life? I think it was about two years ago I sat in a seminar at the seminary on the theology of Jonathan Edwards. It was led by a professor named Dr. Tom Nettles who's something of a Edwards expertise or an Edwards expert in that world. I remember one afternoon after we dealt with some of Edwards' philosophical works to give our minds a break of sorts, Dr. Nettles pulled out one of Edwards' sermons that's called The Excellency of Jesus Christ. And he proceeded to utter something that I really never thought I would hear hear from a seminary professor. He said, outside of scripture, this is the closest thing you will ever read to inspired language. He said, I, I mean it quite frankly, I've never seen anything or read anything so captivating in the English language. So this was after lunch. We were seminary students, only six of us in the room. We were, you know, captive to early afternoon sleepiness, but we were immediately woken up because none of us had read the sermon before that, hey, this must be some really impressive sermon that Edwards delivered so long ago in the 18th century. And as we began to read through it, what I was so convicted by is this reality that it seemed as though Jonathan Edwards had peered into the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ in a way that I haven't even begun to scratch the surface. And somewhere along the way, he said this, speaking of seeing and looking upon Jesus Christ. Here is a strong foundation, an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. And here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, and fearful soul to come to it. What's the one command of Christ in our text? Fear not. Kids, do you remember a few weeks ago when we were studying Luke chapter 5 and he said the same thing to Simon Peter and I told you that this is the most common command in the Bible? Some 365 different times the Lord will say, do not be afraid. Fear not. Some way indicating unto us it seems to be a Ordinary condition of the human soul to be afraid of something? I wonder if you sit in here this morning with any, any fears. Maybe it's fear of dying and what will happen on the other end. Or maybe as one of my mentors once said, I don't fear death, I just fear the process of dying. Or maybe you're in here this morning fearful that your spouse will soon leave. Maybe you're in here this morning and are single and fearful you'll never gain a spouse and be granted that gift. Maybe you're fearful that your children are going to run away from the Lord. Fearful, maybe, that you'll never receive the blessing of children. Maybe it's fear that you won't be able to conquer a secret, a secret sin that has so dominated your life in recent months and years. Or could it even be that many of us sitting here this morning, fearful of tomorrow, for no other reason than we know each day tends to bring great difficulty with it. And the point of our text is fear not. Behold your risen king. It's why my guy Robert Murray McShane once said, a full look upon the Lord Jesus Christ will banish away fear from any believing soul. So as we begin to close, I do want to consider just a couple of things that naturally flow from a full look upon the risen King Jesus Christ. The first of which is a full view of Jesus brings us the comfort of his mercy. Because look again at verse 17. We're told that Jesus lays his right hand on John's shoulder. And do you see what that same right hand in verse 16 was said to have been holding? The seven stars which are the seven angels we find out in the next couple chapters, which could be angelic beings or even pastors of these churches in Asia Minor, the point at which is the very hand that holds the churches is the same hand that touches a shoulder. It says, have no fear. Yes, fall before me, but no, you need not be afraid, for I am with you. So a full view of Christ gives us a fresh experience of his comfort, and his mercy. A full view of Christ also tells us the power of his victory. Because we read earlier this, this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, did we not? What happens if Christ had not been raised from the dead? Well, we're still in our sin. Our faith is futile. We're among all men, most to be pitied, but we confess that Jesus Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So what ought that to mean for those of us who are indeed trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Romans 6 says, Reckon yourself dead to sin. He has broken the chains of sin that once enslaved you and consider yourself alive to Jesus Christ. So a full view of Christ helps grow you in the grace of godliness and reverence before Him. And then finally, a full view of Christ tells us the word of our testimony. This is the Christ of whom we testify. Later on in Revelation chapter 12, we'll see that the saints are said to conquer the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. If you go later on today to any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection, what happens after those first disciples immediately hear the good news that the Savior is no longer in that tomb? They run off to tell someone about it. Is there someone that you might be praying for even this week to tell this good news of who Jesus is, of what he did? and what He has in His hands. For He has risen from the grave, and so He rules over death. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that You are a God who is full of mercy and grace unto us, we who are so prone to fix our eyes upon the things of earth, Help us, we pray, to remember that we have been united to Christ. That if then we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above. So help us, we pray, Lord, to do that. That we indeed might grow in His graces. We might use the gifts of the Spirit to exalt Christ in our life and honor Him with our lips. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.